Welcome to the Head to the Bar podcast. What you're about to hear is provided for general information purposes and support only, and it's not legal education, and it's certainly not legal advice. You should independently check the details that we're just about to discuss. Okay, welcome back. In today's discussion, we're going to be catching up with admissions, which feels like it's a little bit out of order because admissions in the strict sense are an exception to the hearsay rule, but we haven't done the hearsay rule. We're going to be doing that in the next discussion. So it's a bit of a reversal of the natural order, but admissions are used so commonly in real life and are assessed nearly every bar exam so that they're going to need some special attention. I'll just open the slides and speak to them quite closely. So here, when we talk about admissions, we'll eventually come to the concept of real evidence. But essentially what we're looking at here is the concept of something that is said out of court prior to the evidence commencing, which is point one, and that is the reason why the hearsay rule arises. And two, we're looking for some assertive words or conduct that are against interest. So if we look at the dictionary definition of admission under the Evidence Act, we're talking about a previous representation. And as we'll discuss in the next discussion, a representation can be by words or it can be by conduct, which we'll come back to in the hearsay environment. But it's any statement or assertive conduct that's made by a person who is or becomes a party to a proceeding and is adverse to the person's interest in the outcome of the proceeding. So the definition applies in both civil and criminal proceedings, though usually it becomes examinable in a criminal context because there is a raft of other provisions arising under the Evidence Act that relate specifically to criminal proceedings. So when it comes to reviewing this law, firstly, you need to be a little strategic about the approach that you take. You need to know exactly where you're starting, where you're continuing and where you'll end. But also be conscious of the fact that the definition applies in both criminal and civil proceedings, though criminal proceedings are more likely to be assessed. I've included a note in slide two that admission is used in a global sense in the Evidence Act to apply to what would, under the Crimes Act, be divided into both confessions and admissions. So prior to the conception of the Uniform Evidence Act, we talked about a confession being a full acknowledgement of guilt versus an admission, an admission being something falling short of a confession but still being against interest. The Uniform Evidence Act talks about everything from this on the spectrum, from the most modest statement against interest all the way through to a full confession as being an admission, and that's the context in which admission is used. And the next and sort of final point that arises from the introduction is how do we know that a statement is adverse to the person's interest in the outcome of the proceeding? Essentially, an admission represents a concession of something that would otherwise be a fact in issue. So once the issue has come to the end, by reason of the admission, it means it's no longer arguable. So it could be, depending on the circumstances of the uh, civil claim or depending on the circumstances of the crime, it could be something like a concession about presence at a scene. It could be a concession of having struck a victim. It could be indeed, if we use the old Crimes Act language, a full confession of responsibility. So it could be a concession as to all of the facts and issue in the case. 
So when you're looking for something that's against interest, the next question is, well, how do you know it's against interest? Usually it's not a subtle point. It's, it's pretty clear. But if you're trying to discern whether something is against interest, you then next need to look at what are the facts in issue of the case. So turning then to admissibility, why would it be admissible if it uh, seems to be in violation of the hearsay rule? Well, a statement bank being against interest, traditionally the court tends to have regard to the fact that that is inherently reliable. And it applies a, a behavioural maxim, which is that while we all like making statements in our own favour and endeavouring to promote our own interests, typically people don't like making statements against interest. And so that seems to give it, under the old common law, a ring of plausibility. But the response to that is, well, when it comes to verbal admissions, they're simply hot air. So it could be thought that if a person has made a statement, there might be reasons why they would make a statement against interest that aren't as inherently plausible as that would suggest. So a classic example that seems to be examined on a recurring basis is then a, a statement made in response to police brutality or allegations of police misconduct. The difficulty there is that because an admission is simply words or in some circumstances assertive conduct, it might be that that, that, is, uh, that concession is made without it necessarily having that ring of plausibility. And that is what invites the court to be a little sensitive about why certain admissions, though apparently fundamentally admissible, might fall within one of the bases and justifications for exclusion. Now, if you were going through a longer form answer to an admissions problem, my recommendation as the starting point is to consider how the admission is admissible. It can be dealt with very briefly. So you must note that the admission in the particular circumstances of the case is against interest under the Dictionary of the Evidence Act. Then Section 81 of the Evidence Act indicates that the hearsay rule and opinion rule do not apply to evidence of an admission. So as part of that initial practice before you move into the discussion of the principles of admissibility and exclusion, the basis on which this purported hearsay is admitted is that under Section 81, subsection 1 or subsection 2, the rules do not apply if the statement is seen to be against interest or, and that also applies to other statements that are made uh, shortly before or after the admission. And traditionally, that's the justification for reception of what are called mixed statements. So let me give you the example of an accused who concedes having struck a person and causing them injury. In the same breath or reasonably proximately to that admission, they might then go on and say, but it was in self-defence. The law recognises that as a mixed statement, partially inculpatory, which is the admission, and then partially exculpatory. If you are looking for the proposition of admissibility of the exculpatory part, then you look to 81 subsection 2. So the hearsay rule and opinion rule also don't apply to evidence of previous representations that are made contextually with the admission. And lastly, Section 82, if a party is going to rely on an admission in this way, it needs to be first-hand so that we need to have some record of precisely what the accused or the party said. So it has to be either in a criminal case, often if an admission is made to police in the course of the interview, we receive the document itself so that the jury can see the demeanour and observe the words that were used by the accused personally. 
in relation to other criminal proceedings and civil proceedings, you need to have a witness available who saw, heard or otherwise perceived the admission being made. It's not enough that that person then turns to a third person and re repeats the admission and the third person can come along to court. So we'll learn in the next, and we'll discuss in the next discussion that when it comes to hearsay and exceptions to hearsay under the Evidence Act, often the limits of any reliability-based exception to the hearsay rule are then limited to the source itself or a person who saw, heard or otherwise perceived the admission being made. Secondhand repetition is not admissible. And the last introductory point is a point that comes up in practice quite often. And if you needed a legislative authority to support this, Section 83, admissions are only admissible against the admitter, the person doing the admitting, not any other person. So and if an accused has made an admission and then it turns out the accused is being jointly tried with a co-accused, for instance, then from the outset, the jury would need to be guided in the direction that the admission is only admissible against the admitter and that is not admissible against a co-accused or any other third party. And the legislative authority for that is Section 83, and that was a, a proposition that was well acknowledged at common law before Section 83 was conceived. So here is the overall problem-solving strategy that you may wish to use. The first proposition, how the statement is or conduct is considered an admission that requires you to turn your mind to how could it be said that the proposition is against interest? In turn, look to what other facts an issue or apparently no longer an issue once the admission is made. How does it concede something that would otherwise have been an issue? Next is, if you wanted to refer to Section 81 as the basis for reception of the evidence that would otherwise be hearsay, that rounds off the early discussion of the law nicely, doesn't take long. Next, you'd need to turn your mind in a criminal case to any of the factors which might lead to exclusion of that admission, either as a matter of law or in the exercise of discretion. So my suggestion to you here is to muster any of the factors that might lead to a conclusion as to the vulnerability of the accused. So sometimes in a fact pattern, you might see that the accused has uh, significant mental health issues or physical health issues. They might be compromised by a need or a feeling that they wish to protect another person, or they might be encouraged to admit for some sort of other benefit. So they might, they might be subject to some uh, pressure or encouragement to admit in order to um, obtain bail, in order to obtain uh, some other benefit. So muster the circumstances that arise in relation to the particular accused. And separately, look to any criticism that can be made of the questioner. So this often arises in the context of police behaviour in exam problems. But the next question is whether uh, there might be any impugned behaviour on the part of the police that could justify exclusion as a question of law or as a question of fact. So the reason why you'd muster all of those facts before you start looking at exclusion at law or exclusion in the exercise of discretion is that they're a common pool. So where, it, where you talk about the admitter's vulnerabilities, the police behaviour or other impugned factors, 
the reason why I suggest that you muster them before start, starting to talk about the heads of exclusion is because we'll quickly learn that though each of the points of exclusion, um, Section 84, Section 85, Section 90, Section 138, have different focuses, uh, you tend to draw from that common pool of facts. So as far as problem solving is concerned, slide four sets out a ready methodology that you can use in circumstances of many, many different um, fact patterns. So there we face two bases of exclusion. Point two you'll see from slide four is exclusion at law. As we'll discuss, when it comes to a criminal case, and in fact, Section 84 may also apply in civil cases as we'll look at, possibly Section 85, we'll have a look um, as time goes on. If it is said that the behaviour establishes the preconditions for 84 or 85, then a trial judge doesn't have a discretion. They must exclude the admissions as a matter of law. The reason why I suggest you tackle that first is because if the facts are such that 84 or 85 of the Evidence Act are demonstrated, there's no further work for you or the judge to do. So it doesn't rely on fine points of principle and, you know, points of high art like Section 90 and Section 138 do. Instead, it is compulsory exclusion as a matter of law and the trial judge does not have a discretion. Moving on, though, further and separately to the arguments under 84 and 85, which would justify exclusion at law, you then have capacity to exclude in the exercise of discretion under one or both of Section 90 and Section 138 of the Evidence Act. Section 90, you might know well from your studies at uni or in practice, is the fairness discretion at common law. Um, now, the unfairness discretion under the Uniform Evidence Act and 138 relates to improperly or illegally obtained evidence. And this is the first of the legislative provisions that applies not only to admissions, but also in relation to real evidence. So 138 applies equally to both admissions and real evidence. And if you're wondering what real evidence is in this context, the classic example that's referred to by the textbook authors is the compound scenario where you might have a suggestion of a murder, for instance, and a missing body. If police were to interrogate a suspect and the suspect made an admission as to involvement in the crime and then a concession about knowledge of the location of the body, you can see that a process has been set in motion from that interrogation where the police would gather answers in the form of admissions and they would also gather real evidence in the form of the discovery of the body. So that is the difference between real evidence and admissions. You might think, continuing that scenario, that if police were to investigate the science around the dead body and so forth, police may then obtain further real evidence in the nature of the science, uh, DNA, and there might be other scientific evidence gathered from that investigation. Another example of real evidence. If we look carefully at the heads of discretionary exclusion, Section 138 would apply to one or all of those. So if it were said, for instance, that the interrogation was improperly or illegally conducted and resulted in admissions that were improperly or illegally obtained, then it may be that those answers are inadmissible. But in that um, more complex scenario, there might have been real evidence obtained by the derivative use of the information that's obtained in the interview. So the next interesting question would be whether that would justify and lead to a, a 
conclusion that the body and the discovery of the body may then need to be excluded as well and further the scientific evidence obtained from the body obtained from the illegally or improperly obtained answers. So please be live to the fact that further and separately to this discussion about admissions is also the, the discussion about real evidence. And just to round off the introduction, the reason why real evidence raises slightly different questions is because unlike admissions, which I've referred to uh, perhaps oversimplistically as hot air, real evidence in some ways doesn't have those same concerns with respect to reliability because real evidence you might think in many circumstances is objective and verifiable, whereas in relation to the words, sometimes the courts are left with a question in that regard. So that brings an end to the introductory matters, that is issue spotting and knowing how to get started and knowing the basics of the introductory parts of the law. Any questions or comments are welcome. So next we move on to the head of exclusion as a matter of law and I implore you when it comes to problem solving to proceed in that order even if for instance it looks like there's uh, illegally or improperly obtained evidence it would be irresistible and many candidates before you have proceeded straight to the question of 138. That's not the starting point, that's the end point, because it may be, for instance, that if there has been illegality or impropriety on the part of the police, the proper starting point might be Section 84 of the Evidence Act, which relates to admissions influenced, for instance, by violence and certain other conduct. Now, if you were counsel and you had a suggestion of violent police behaviour, you'd start with Section 84 by reason that if the trial judge makes the finding under Section 84 on the facts of the case, then the evidence is automatically excluded and you don't then need to move on to the elements of persuasion involved with discretionary exclusion under 138. So though you may be convinced that 138 is going to be the most suitable candidate for exclusion, you have to start with 84 and 85, except if they're clearly eliminated on the facts of the case. And many before you attempting the bar exam have in their enthusiasm to discuss 138 moved straight to the end. But let's start at the start. So under exclusion as a matter of law and assuming that you've mustered your circumstances before you've started, you've paid attention to those that look at the accused vulnerability and you've noted the matters that might suggest that the police or questioner's conduct is some way impugned. We then need to look at which one or both of 84 and 85 might be relevant in the circumstances. 84, as you'll see from the heading, relates to admissions influenced by violence and certain other conduct. They apply to all proceedings, civil and criminal. So there could be a fact pattern that would lead to a, a noting an admission in a civil proceedings, and then you'd move to section 84. That is the last of those provisions that relates to civil proceedings. So if you have had been wrong-footed, you'd carefully prepared for civil proceedings only to sorry for criminal proceedings, only to be confronted by a civil proceeding. You would then gracefully move from exclusion as a matter of law under section 84 to the general discretions under 135 and 136. Civil proceedings don't involve the same nuance that we're just about to discuss in criminal proceedings. So section 84, as we'll discuss, relates almost exclusively to police or questioning behaviour. 
Section 85 relates to unreliability. It only pertains to criminal proceedings and not to civil proceedings. And it involves a dual focus between the accused vulnerabilities and the questioner's behaviour. So 84, all proceedings, but it focuses on police or other questioners' behaviour. Section 85 applies only to criminal proceedings, but it's a broader inquiry into the circumstances of the accused. And we'll end up seeing a little bit of a repetition of those emphases in relation to discretionary exclusion. Fairness tends to focus on the accused and improper or illegal conduct relates to the police behaviour again. So a deeper dive into section 84 and, and its text is set out on this slide. So let's assume that you've found primarily that a statement is an admission and you've worked through the basics of how it is then admitted subject to exclusion. In all proceedings, evidence of an admission is not admissible unless the court satisfied the admission and the making of the admission were not influenced by violent, oppressive, inhuman or degrading conduct or a threat of that conduct, whether towards the person who made the admission or towards another person. And it's a relatively simple provision in that regard. So look to the questioner's behaviour, but it's not limited to the questioner. Usually in, in problems, if Section 84 is a live issue, it will be suggested that it is the questioner's behaviour that's in, in issue. But it's not so limited. So in some cases, for instance, we might see the victim apply pressure to the accused. We might see the victim's family apply pressure to the accused to force or forcefully encourage an admission to be made. And looking at the text of that provision, it, it doesn't matter whether the police, for instance, to whom an admission was made, influenced it or knew about it. If something is happening behind the scenes that might have led to an admission, then it is inadmissible and it's as simple as that. 84.2 indicates that the section will only apply if the accused in a criminal case or the person who has purportedly made the admission in a civil case raises it as a live issue. So there's not a presumption of exclusion unless the issue is raised by the party against whose interest the admission is being led. Now, I've caught many of the very, very useful points that the Judicial College of Victoria makes in the subsequent slide at slide seven notes. So I've mentioned now a number of times it applies both to criminal and civil proceedings, though it is more attractive as a fact pattern in criminal proceedings because as we continue to discuss, you can then go on and argue 85 in the alternative and the further consequential discretionary exclusions. I've mentioned it's not limited to police misbehaviour. It would also apply to civilian misconduct and also civilian misconduct that might take place behind the scenes. So you might have a complainant or a family uh, who are applying pressure, even if that's not known to the police, it wouldn't affect the exclusion under 84. Now, as far as onus and standard, the way that it works is a bullet point four. Once a party raises this, the uh, issue of this inappropriate conduct, the onus then falls on the party seeking to tender the evidence to establish on the balance of probabilities that the admission and the making of the admission were not influenced by that conduct or threat. So if it is raised as a genuine live issue, then the party seeking to rely on the admission, so in a criminal case that would naturally be the prosecution, 
needs to persuade the judge not to exclude it under that heading. And the focus there is, as per the last bullet point, on the police or other external behaviour, not the admitter's circumstances. So let me give you an illustration of that. Unlike in relation to some of the other provisions, if you could think of the most frail and vulnerable accused imaginable, so young, affected by uh, illiteracy and a vulnerable mental health and vulnerable physical health, or the most stoic accused you could imagine, um, so old and wise, experienced, educated, sophisticated, wealthy. Now, if the admission had been influenced by violent or threats of violence or other similar conduct, it matters not whether the accused is stoic or vulnerable. The focus of Section 84 is very much on that external behaviour and not the particular accused. And that's a useful point of focus because when we move through the other three heads of exclusion, that waxes and wanes. So look to the behaviour and look very carefully to see whether that would lead to automatic exclusion. And if you were considering a fact pattern that that generated this discussion, as I've always mentioned, don't keep your eggs in one basket. You can continue and discuss the other potential alternatives as they go. Now, Section 85, as you may remember from our summary, is the other head of compulsory exclusion as a matter of law. And here, the focus is very much on the accused. Section 85 will lead to the exclusion as a matter of law of admissions where there is a genuine issue as to their reliability. Here I'm paraphrasing. So the focus of Section 85, where there is a genuine issue as to their reliability. I've extracted Section 85 on slide eight. So you'll note just a few points from the outset, and many of these I've consolidated on the next slide in relation to notes. It applies only in a criminal proceeding. That's point one. So we're only talking about proceedings in which the accused has made an admission. And further, the admission needs to be to or in the presence of an investigating official who's doing their job at the time or another person who can influence a prosecution. So we're not talking about every proceeding. We're only talking about criminal where an accused has made an admission and the admission then needs to be to an investigator or another person who could influence the proceeding. Now, 85.2 is a rare example of a triple negative, which we don't see in legislation very often, fortunately. I'll read you the Act and then you can see whether you can cancel two of the negatives and you'll just be left with one of the negatives, which is a breath of fresh air. So evidence of the admission is not admissible unless, okay, that's fine, the circumstances in which the admission was made were such as to make it unlikely that the truth of the admission was adversely affected. So where I refer to the triple negative, look at the unlikely and look at the adversely affected. If you were to cancel the second and the third negative, you'd end up with something that paraphrased the circumstances in which the admission was made were such as to make it likely that the truth of the admission was reliable. So the evidence is inadmissible unless the circumstances in which the admission was made were such as to make it likely the truth of the admission was reliable. Now, you wouldn't use my language to paraphrase that in an exam, but under exam conditions, it's a little difficult to cancel two of the negatives and sort of leave you with one. So given the heading of the provision and the focus of the provision, 
you're really checking the circumstances to make sure that the judge can be left satisfied or at least not in doubt that the admission is reliable. And the sorts of factors that are taken into account, 85 subsection 3, involve a split focus between, firstly, exactly as you would expect, 85.3a, any relevant condition or characteristic of the person who made the admission, including age, personality and education, and any mental, intellectual or physical disability to which the person is or appears likely to be subject, and if the admission's made in response to questioning, the nature of any questions, the manner in which they're put, and any threat, promise, or other inducement made to the person questioned. So here we have a split focus. In relation to reliability, I would suggest to you that in many cases, it would be some vulnerability on the part of the accused that would give rise to a live issue with respect to reliability. So if we were to, to return to those two hypothetical extremes, one is the most vulnerable accused that you could possibly contemplate, and one is a stoic accused. In circumstances in which the accused has made an admission, you might think, and we might be generalising, but it's just for the purpose of this illustration, that if there was some questionable police behaviour or if, for instance, the accused was feeling particularly fragile on that occasion, they might be more likely to make an unreliable admission than, for instance, a stoic person where you would have to think very, very carefully to be able to come up with circumstances where a person of uh, age and maturity and sophistication and education knows that if they make an admission which is caught on tape that it will be used against them and yet they still wander into the spectrum of making an unreliable admission. So usually the fact pattern that will give rise to Section 85 as a live discussion, but not exhaustively, is some vulnerability on the part of the accused. I say not exhaustively because if you look at threats, promises or other inducements made to the person questioned, even if you feel that you might be a fairly stoic person answering questions uh, to police, if the police were to make, and, and this is purely hypothetically for the purpose of an exam scenario, if the uh, police made a genuinely appealing inducement, such as you won't be charged, such as another person that is dear to you might escape charge, then that might be a sort of vehicle that might justify a false admission. So you're looking for some combination of the accused vulnerability or otherwise and the uh, behaviour of the questioners. So just to consolidate and bring Section 85 to the end, and some of these points are re repetitive, it applies only to criminal proceedings. And just as we've seen in relation to Section 84, the accused has an evidentiary burden to point to some issue with respect to reliability under this provision. And if they manage to do that, the prosecution then bears the onus of establishing on the balance of probabilities that the circumstances in which the admission was made was such as to make it unlikely the truth of the admission was adversely affected. So a couple of things. Remember here that there's that subtle double negative, triple negative, and so you might need to make a note to self that the focus is very much reliability as per the heading of the section. And secondly, we can be quite confident about using the language of prosecution rather than the party relying on the admission because 84 was drafted in relation to both criminal and civil proceedings, whereas 85 relates exclusively to criminal proceedings. 
the focus is very much on the admitter um, and the effect of the circumstances upon them. So consider age, mental or physical condition, capacity, sobriety is one that seems to come up all the time as well. Sometimes we see old fact patterns where some rogue police has administered truth serum or something, you know, that's external to the circumstances. So that might impugn the reliability or truthfulness of the statement. And in relation to the, the question, the circumstances in which the admission was made with respect to reliability, that is the circumstances of the making of the admission, not whether the admission fits neatly into the rest of the prosecution case. So here I'm returning to the language of 85 subsection 2, but the question as to reliability is, at that moment in that police station, having regard to all of the circumstances that we now know with respect to the accused, with respect to police, are the circumstances in which the admission was made such that there's no live issue with reliability? It's not a question of whether the circumstances of the rest of the case suggest that the admission is reliable because it's a very potent piece of evidence. So that's the focus of section 85. There are other notes arising in um, slide 10. And so be willing and prepared not only to identify section 85 and its focus, but then to do just a quick pull of the circumstances that you had identified globally at the start to emphasise those that are specific to this particular question. Now, further and separately, again, to the question of exclusion as a matter of law, we then move to exclusion in the exercise of discretion, which in my earlier suggestion with respect to the method of answering these types of problems, if they're fully blown in the fact of uh, an exam problem, would be our question three. And I say further and separately because, as I've been saying, it's the same set of circumstances, but just slightly different tests as you move through each of these provisions. So the two bases of discretionary exclusion for admissions are section 90 and section 138. Section 90 relates to fairness to the accused and it only applies in criminal proceedings. Section 138 is admissions and also real evidence um, that has been improperly or unlawfully obtained and it only relates to criminal proceedings. So here if you're taking notes on slide 11, if you're dealing with a civil proceeding, as I've mentioned, at this point you would move swiftly to sections 135 and 136, the general heads of exclusion, balancing probative value and prejudicial effect. Now, these two provisions mimic the old common law quite closely, but obviously they now stand alone without regard to those earlier cases. And I'll resist the temptation to give you a full three-hour journey through those common law cases, as tempting as it may be. Firstly, fairness under section 90. Look at the words that are used and you'll note that unless you were aware of the sorts of factors that the court takes into account, it might be a little difficult to know what this provision means. So in a criminal proceeding, the court may refuse to admit evidence of an admission if the evidence is adduced by the prosecution and having regard to the circumstances in which the admission was made, it would be unfair to an accused to use the evidence. So the focus is unfair to the accused. And as I say, unless you were fluent in the sort of language that the court uses around fairness, it might be difficult to know where to start there. 
So if you're considering this provision, point one is it's discretionary, the court may refuse. So as long as the court takes into account all relevant circumstances, they have a discretion to exclude or not, as the case may be. And then point two is the focus is very much the circumstances in which the admission was made and unfair to the accused. So you look to the circumstances in which the admission was made and consider unfairness to the accused. So the next point is, how does this work in practice? Well, the onus is on the accused squarely to demonstrate it would be unfair to admit evidence of an admission. The focus is primarily upon the accused, but it's also influenced by police or other outside conduct. Much to our frustration, unfair is not defined. And there's, well, the Australian Law Reform Commission has said there's no guidance on the application of the discretion. I respectfully disagree to some extent. There's no precise guidance as to what circumstances will definitively be fair, definitively be unfair. But instead, you're looking for something that as a lawyer strikes at your conscience. So fairness has always been about conscience. And the question is, why in particular should this accused who has made an admission, why would it be unfair for their words to be used against them? And that's where we need help. So who else to turn to? But of course, preeminent author Stephen Odgers, SC, who has summarised the points arising from past cases as influencing that decision and uh, the finding. The sorts of factors that ought to be considered, for me, an interesting one, the nature and extent of any infringement on the accused rights and privileges. And if you need only to mention one, it is the accused right to remain silent. That is the right that has been argued many, many, many times before the, the High Court. I said that I wouldn't do it. I'm only going to do it in a very compressed form. Think about Foster, who was a 17-year-old illiterate Aboriginal accused in the Northern Territory, who was whisked off the street in an unlawful uh, arrest and questioned before he admitted to an arson. So if you look at the circumstances, it was the illegal arrest and the fact that the accused was unable to exercise their right to silence by reason of their age, by reason of their misunderstanding and the inherent power imbalance between that gentleman and police. So you're looking for some nexus with their rights, such as the right to remain silent. Later cases, um, Pavic, M, Toffalau, the High Court wasn't as sensitive to grown men who were reasonably experienced in dealing with police, making admissions, wrongly believing that they wouldn't be used against them. So is it truly a, an undermining of a right to remain silent if there is a covert listening device when they volunteer their involvement to police? So you need to find a right and then you also need to find something further. So next we move back to Odger's recommendations as he summarises the law. The impact of such infringement on the accused. So if you're relying on the right to remain silent, it's not enough to say right to remain silent, Your Honour, and then sit down. How does that then become unfair to the particular accused, the impact of such infringement on the accused? 
relevantly, and it might overlap with the 138 discretion, was there any unlawful unlawfulness or impropriety on the part of the police that influenced the accused to make the admission, which might then be said to be unfair to the accused, and so on and so forth. Mental incapacity of the accused, circumstances which make the admission unreliable, remind us of the overlap between the fairness discretion and the unreliability head of exclusion as a matter of law. So here you have that split focus. You need to look at the circumstances of the accused. But essentially what you're trying to find is some arguable unfairness in the circumstances of the accused particular case. So whilst I understand you'd be under pressure in the circumstances of an exam, try not to rely on a simple recitation of the right to silence. It has to be the right to silence leads to unfairness on the part of this 17-year-old or mentally handicapped or particular accused by reason of such and such. So you start with a right, annex it back to the accused personal circumstances, and then that gives greater leverage in relation to calculating and submitting why there is unfairness in the circumstances of the particular case. So moving on to section 138, which, as I've mentioned, applies to both improperly or unlawfully obtained admissions and improperly or unlawfully obtained real evidence. So it could be real evidence obtained by police from the outset. So this could be in Bunning and Cross um, where they unlawfully or improperly obtained a sample of the accused breath by bypassing uh, improperly the preconditions for obtaining that sample. It could be any other real evidence that implicates the accused in the commission of an offence, or it could be a hybrid, as I'd foreshadowed, with, with the discovery of the dead body after the admissions. It could be that the real evidence is obtained as a result of the admissions made by the accused. 1381 is actually broad enough to cover the evidence that's obtained improperly or illegally, or evidence obtained in consequence of improperly or illegally obtained evidence. And that's why I've used the compound example where we start with one tranche of improperly obtained evidence and that sets in motion an investigative trail. The test is under 1381. This evidence that's been obtained improperly or illegally is not to be admitted unless the desirability of admitting the evidence on the one hand outweighs the undesirability of admitting evidence that has been obtained in the way in which the evidence was obtained on the other. So it's a balancing exercise between the court's desire to admit compelling evidence on the one hand and the court's reluctance to admit evidence that's been improperly or illegally obtained on the other. 1382. So evidence of an admission that's made during or in the consequence of offending and evidence that's obtained downstream as a result of that admission is taken to have been obtained improperly if the person conducting the questioning did or omitted to do an act in the course of questioning even though they knew or reasonably to have known that that was likely to impair or likely to impair substantially the ability of the person being questioned to respond rationally to the question or made a false statement in the course of questioning even though they knew or ought reasonably to have known that the statement was false and that was likely to lead to an admission. So an example of where that provision might become relevant would be a fact pattern where canny police decide to lie to the accused and wrongly suggest that their DNA is found at a scene or in connection with a complainant. 
So in such a situation that evidence is deemed to be obtained improperly and then you'd move straight to the evaluation of the public policies in favour of excluding the evidence versus admitting the evidence. So 1381 was the test, 1382 was a situation where evidence is deemed to have been obtained improperly and then 1383 are the types of factors that must be taken into account by the court in determining whether to admit the evidence, which is the presumption, or exclude the evidence in the exercise of discretion. And they relate to the evidence, they relate to the proceeding and how serious it is, and then they relate to the impropriety or the illegality. So you can have a look at the factors in 1383, but they relate to the evidence, they relate to the proceeding, and they relate to the impropriety or illegality. And the suggestion being that the more grave the impropriety or illegality, the more powerful the justification to exclude the evidence is. And they all need to be balanced and it is often difficult to know which one is going to attract the most significance. Now, question. When answering an exam question where 138 arises, it seems that Section 90 might often also apply. Do we need to be careful about referring to Section 90 as well if Section 138 applies? A good question. I'd always start with Section 90 simply noting that the focus of the head of discretionary exclusion is fairness to the accused. And the uh, just like um, Odgers suggested, you look at the usurpation of the accused rights as being the first axis of discussion. So it would be fairly straightforward to identify that because you'd say that though I'll come to it in 138, it seems that there is a fairly grave and straightforward impropriety, that is dot, dot, dot. But with your Section 90 analysis, you then go on and say, okay, so the police behaviour has been illegal or improper. The next question, though, under Section 90 is, but how is it unfair to the accused to receive that evidence? You need something that, that's that little bit further. So it could relate to the reliability. It could relate to the fact that it's a breach of human rights. You're trying to, to annex it back to fairness to the particular accused. And that's a perfectly valid argument. You could do it in three or four lines and then move straight to the 138 discussion. Next, when considering probative value for 138, are credibility and reliability assumed or not? The judge has no role to play in, in uh, evaluating credibility or reliability under any of the tests now in the Evidence Act. So though in uh, Victoria that came as quite a shock, particularly to the Court of Appeal, in IMM, it was indicated that primarily the test is, no, you don't have regard to credibility and reliability. You assume that those are irrelevant. So as far as the probative value, you'll still just look on the evidence taken at its highest, how closely it points to proof of the fact and issue. So if it's a marginal point, then that might diminish the probative value. So the admission or the real evidence might be something that's not directly related to a fact and issue at all. It could be a modest circumstance. It would depend on the circumstances of the case. Usually an admission is to the other extreme. So once you um, perhaps learn about this in practice if you haven't already, but once an accused has made an admission, you might think in running the trial that that will be fairly demonstrative of how the trial is run. 
So admissions tend to be of fairly sharp probative value, especially at the pre-trial stage where you can't make any assumptions as to credibility or reliability. So ordinarily an admission would be of fairly high probative value. Real evidence, it depends on the facts of the case. All right, so coming to the end of this sequence of slides, and we've covered an awful lot of distance in a short time, all of the literature, including the discussion out of Bunning and Cross, out of Ridgeway, all of those leading high court cases that I'm trying hard to resist the temptation to tell you all about, talks about, and the, the split fo focuses foci of this section are the need to admit reliable evidence on the one hand, of which real evidence often is, on the, and that is the first hand. And the second one, of course, is the public interest in vindicating individual rights, deterring misconduct and maintaining the legitimacy of the judicial system exactly as you would expect. In Australia, as you know from looking at this provision, the trial judge has a discretion. We don't have a doctrine like the fruit of the poisonous tree like in the US, where the evidence would be automatically excluded. And some prospective clients are shocked to hear that, that you're still battling and you're up against it to persuade a trial judge to exclude the evidence. You can see from the balance of the bullet points at slide 13 that the focus of this provision is very much the, the uh, balancing of those countervailing policy considerations. This section does not give guidance as to relative weight to be afforded to those different factors. So your responsibility in an exam is to muster those circumstances before coming to an educated conclusion as to the ultimate ruling that a trial judge might take. And of course, just to consolidate and conclude, it relates to both use of the evidence, the admissions or the real evidence, and derivative use, which is use of any information or intelligence that is derived from the evidence that was illegally or improperly obtained. At slide 19, um, and we're right at the very end, um, possibly mercifully for some people who are a little tired of hearing about this, 18 to 19, so you need to consider whether the evidence was improperly or illegally obtained and then consider under 1381 how to resolve those competing public policies. As far as background matters, the onus is initially on the party seeking to exclude the evidence to establish that it falls within the terms of 138. So that is to establish that the evidence was indeed illegally or improperly obtained. And then if that onus is met, the onus shifts on the party relying on the admission to persuade the court that the desirability of admitting the evidence outweighs the undesirability of excluding it. Now, 139 is the very last provision that applies in this sequence, and it indicates a situation where evidence is deemed to have been obtained improperly. So this is the second example, because you'll remember that 1382 provided an indication, for instance, if an investigator has falsely put a proposition to an accused during interview, that evidence is deemed to be improperly obtained if the accused takes the bait and gives an answer that represents an admission given that the bait is improperly dangled and, and, and in the circumstances of a police interview, the accused is entitled to accept that the police are behaving appropriately and truthfully, that will be deemed, evidence deemed obtained improperly. And under 139, an improper caution or a caution that is not given and also 1393 
a caution that is given in a language that the accused can't understand. So any impropriety in satisfying the need to communicate the caution will also lead to an interview being deemed to have been conducted improperly. So any potential fruit in a, a fact pattern that arises from an interview that, that doesn't follow an appropriate caution will also be deemed to have been obtained improperly. So there's quite a bit to work with there. What uh, my suggestion to you has been throughout is to make sure that you have identified a sequence of a question tree, if you will, as to the issues that you need to address. In our next class, which uh, next discussion, which will be the last time that we look at the substantive law of evidence, we're going to look at hearsay in an hour. So we'll do the last of the deep digs into the law being hearsay. And then after that, I'm going to spend two discussions reflecting on the easier way to address evidence problem solving. So we'll try to find the simplest decision-making tree in each of those uh, the areas that we've looked at. Thank you for listening to the Head to the Bar podcast. For outlines, links to resources and other downloads, please refer to the show notes.